It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM, our weekly chance to sit down with award-winning journalists from all over the East End for a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27east.com, and Express Magazine. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good panel this week. We have Beth Young, who's the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Hello. Good to have you. We have Joe Workmeister, who's a staff writer with Newsday. Hey, Joe. Hey, good to be back. Good to have you. And we have Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. Great to have you here. So let's start off talking EPCAL. There was a big meeting this week uh, up your way uh, in Riverhead uh, at Bill Levitt Music Hall, right? Uh, tell us about what that was about and where we stand. You might want to give everybody a quick primer on what the EPCAL project actually is before we dive in here. Denise Denise is a deer in headlights thinking about having to try and sum up what the (laughs) update. I already know I'm completely incapable of giving a quick update. Um, Go for it, Beth. Come on. um, (laughs) The uh, Grumman used to make um, fighter jets there. It belonged to the Navy. They gave it to Riverhead when we were all very young in the 1990s. <laughs> and Riverhead's still trying to figure out what to do with it. They've been in contract since 2018 um, to sell uh, about 1,600 acres for $40 million, which at this point everyone thinks is a real steal and has a lot of questions about the people who are in contract to buy this property. Got and, it. There you go. There you go. And, we should actually most, record. We should record <laughs> Beth doing that. that that's a great nut grab. Drop it yep. in. Yeah. A loop. But but the, the latest controversy though is over this um, plan to um, use the site because the town is selling along with that all that acreage in in that package deal the two runways on the site, and um, they are. Uh, the, the buyer unveiled plans last year for uh, these like 9 million square feet of logistics and distribution warehouse buildings, pretty massive buildings um, that um, along the runways that they said would be uh, used for a cargo a package, you know, freight package receipt and distribution. And is this going to be Amazon, Denise? Well, they didn't say. Uh, Amazon told me that uh, a spokesperson for Amazon said that they have no current plans, uh, you know, for that site. Um, and but they did use Amazon as an example of the type of tenant that would rent those facilities or some of them um, and use the runways for uh, air cargo. And they spoke about and, you know, they they talked about it. It's in their application. It's in their the plans and renderings that they uh, showed at the meeting. And then when everybody went bananas over that, um, they've been since then basically trying their best to backpedal from that without really saying, oh, we're not going to do that. I mean, there's they were they keep mincing kind of mincing words. They're saying, oh, that's not really what our plan is. But they keep kind of couching their terms that they use and qualifying what they say. And they, when I'm saying they, I'm pretty much referring to their attorneys, of course, because that's what lawyers do. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people in Riverhead are like, well, you know, you're not going to fool us. <laughs> you t- you told you laid bare your plans, you know? And um, so it's, as you might imagine, a rather controversial subject uh, in Riverhead town and beyond. Uh, again, last night, I mentioned this last week, um, Southampton Councilman Tommy John Chiavoni was there and um, he spoke and um, talked about his interest in what happens there. And, and in particular, in this, uh, if there's an air cargo hub there, he spoke about what happens when um, the applicant or the property owner or whatever gets FAA funding and assistance from the FAA and how you can like kiss any local control goodbye. You know, he's a Sag Harbor resident. He's very familiar with air traffic 
noise, et cetera, for the East Hampton Airport. And he spoke about that again, as he did during a public hearing or a public information session before the IDA last week, I think it was earlier this month. And, um, you know, as he pointed out last night, and this is of interest to our listeners tuning in on the South Fork, um, you know, that the 10,000 foot runway, as he put it, points right at East Quag. Mm. And, you know, the jets either coming in or taking off using that runway are going to be flying, you know, at fairly low altitudes um, over the western Southampton town in particular. Mm. But really, like in general, they were saying how, you know, 20 mile radius around an airport where there are large jets taking off and landing are, you know, is going to be impacted by by noise. Um, and, you know, so anyway, it's, it really is a regional issue. And, um, so that has been the source of his interest, uh, which I think people in Riverhead are grateful for because, you know, they felt kind of like shouldering this alone and they're not, they don't have the resources to, um, to do that on their own. I feel like it's been sort of a smoldering story for a long time that, um, it, it may not be on everybody's consciousness, especially right. on the South Fork, uh, but I think people are starting to wake up to it a little bit. Beth, you you yeah. were there last night, right, uh, mm-hmm. at the meeting. What was the what was the purpose of the meeting? What was the context of this meeting in Riverhead on mm-hmm. Thursday night? Well, it was really it was hosted by the Heart of Riverhead Civic Association, and um, the presentations came from a, a a lot of people involved with the group uh, Epcal Watch. Uh, which is kind of a community group um, involving a lot of uh, civic leaders who uh, have been watching this closely for a very long time. Uh, I think the the main theme of the meeting was just kind of to get the community organized in their opposition, because um, there's been a lot of um, uh, a lot of people showing up at public hearings at, for quite a while now, and and uh, having the town really just ignore them um i would say so they talked but, about but i'm i'm really impressed by by the vocal um by the yeah. vocal outreach by by these groups you know regarding this project i i think yeah. what whether or, organized or not I, I i think certainly everybody's speaking up about it yeah they've been turning out repeatedly um for more than a year now i'd say um really 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 paying close attention um, but one of the things they were talking about last night was, or Thursday night, was um, um, starting a legal fund and um, getting answers from people who are running for office this fall and going door to door, letting people who don't know about it know about what's going on. Um, and the opposition, it's about the noise, but it's about some other stuff too, right? There's a, there's, there are some other elements of the project um, that have people concerned. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's a where if it's a logistics warehouse, there's a lot of traffic associated with that that you wouldn't get if it was say an R and D um, uh, park park, which is what they initially proposed. So you know, just I I think when they did do any kind of traffic study on this, that's this wasn't in the cards, right, Denise? Absolutely not. They've done absolutely no environmental review whatsoever on this plan. Right, and. You know, people they were are using a, an old a pre, they were using a previous environmental review, right? I mean, pointing uh, pointing to what which had absolutely the environmental review was done on a completely different subdivision plan, not even the the subdivision plan that they're you know using to transfer a massive chunk of property to the triple five group. Um, it was done on a fifty lot subdivision plan that. Um, Actually, when you look at that, um, one of those runways was going to be um, like plowed under and, uh, you know, developed as as part, you know, with lots like in, in this industrial subdivision. They weren't even going to ha- have a, a r- second runway there. And, um, you know, that that just fell by the wayside um, in 2017 when the town started negotiating to sell essentially the whole site to uh, Daniel Preston and Illuminati Aerospace. Um, and then it that morphed into this Calverton Aviation and Technology, in which Illuminati is a partner or what, you know, is a, a part, part owner with Triple Five Group being the majority, um, the majority owner of this LLC. Um, and 
you know, so there's been no environmental review done on this whatsoever. And triple five's attorneys have said there doesn't need to be. We did that, you know, that we did the town already did secret review, secret's done. And you know, that stunned a lot of people, but um I don't know where that goes. Like I, you know, I, I don't know how that, that's sustainable, but you know, is you this never a case know Riverhead. Is this a case where just the size of the project makes it sort of get it's getting special consideration in a lot of ways just because of the nature of it's it's such an overwhelmingly large project. Well, but that's not a reason to not do environmental. I mean, you know, <laughs> still applies, if anything, you know, maybe more so. But, um, you know, they just they have not done that yet. And uh, most recently, town officials have said, well, you know, Seeker's going to be done when they apply for their permits to build these buildings. But, you wow. know, really, if you're familiar with Seeker, that's not how that works. Um, the strange thing is that this right now is being like these plans were first unveiled before the Riverhead Industrial Development Agency, not before the planning board, not before the town board, not before anything like that, but before this the IDA, which doesn't grant those approvals. It doesn't grant, you know, site plan approval or subdivision approval. It basically grants financial assistance to the applicant, which is what's pending right now, an application for tax exemptions to the IDA, which the town is has joined as a co-applicant to get these tax exemptions. And once those are granted, um, the triple five will pay the town the balance of the $40 million purchase price. And then something is going to happen. Like they're either going to pursue the the subdivision or while they're doing the subdivision, they've got this lease of the land with the IDA and they're going to try to develop it while that's still not even approved, which uh, is mind bending to me. I don't know how that gets done, but you know, that's where this is at. So the IDA is like, well, we don't do secret review. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, and, and do you see weird. any way out of this contract for the town? I mean, nobody. Well, you know, Beth, I mean, funny you should mention that because the town, the contract specifically says that if the town does not get a final subdivision approval for that sale, within one year of getting like what's called a notice to go forward, like, you know, moving ahead after they did their environmental investigation, the, the buyer, right? That either, if that doesn't happen within a year, either party can cancel the contract and neither will have any, you know, recourse against the other. Like that was like condition precedent to going forward. And the town has maintained when that year ended and they didn't, they weren't anywhere near getting uh, their final subdivision done, largely because of some regulatory problems with the state DEC. They were like, well, our attorney says we can't cancel this contract. The attorney that wrote this contract, by the way, that represented the town and said, mm. we can't cancel this contract because we're going to be in court for like too long, for like five years or whatever, you know. Mm. So here we are five years later and we're still, you know, in this, I don't know, you know, purgatory kind of with this and i guess limbo is the right word i'm getting my catholic school terms mixed up but you know <laughs> the dynamic of this intrigues me though you, the the meeting this week and in riverhead that we're talking about was opposition groups getting together and trying to organize so that they can be more effective but it seems to me that the town board is already more or less committed to moving forward with this project it's going to be really difficult for an opposition group to get a lot of traction here, isn't it? Uh, well, that's why they're doing like a legal fund. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Because they say that, you know, they feel like the writing is on the wall with that. I mean, um, now, it, it, in all fairness, uh, council member Tim Hubbard, who um, is running for town supervisor, uh, came out um, it, well, these are this month or last month, I'm sorry, but at, with uh, a statement, you know, an op-ed that we published saying, you know, I will not allow a cargo jet port. I'm totally opposed to that. I will not allow a cargo jet port to um, there. Um, 
And I don't know where that goes. I mean, you know, he said that in no uncertain terms. Um, and because of the phrasing that the triple five attorneys have used, um, I feel personally like there's, there's a lot of, as we put it in an editorial, a lot of uh, wiggle room big enough to drive like a, a, a cargo jet through, you know, <laughs> it, you know, there's, and I, I won't get into the details of that, but it's got to do with accessory uses, and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, they're leaving a lot of like little back doors open. It seems like, I don't think that the councilman is doing that, but we'll see what happens in the face of that kind of maneuvering with, you know, and again, he's one vote on the town board if he's elected. Um, so who knows? I mean, you don't really like, I think, as you said before, you know, it's, it's the year 2045 and here's our weekly EPCAL update. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That, that, the, that $40 million uh, price is just going to look crazier and crazier as each year goes by, right? I mean, uh, that, totally. I mean, it's, it's, tw- it's under $25,000 an acre for industrially zoned land. And, yeah. you know, there was a representative there from the Teamsters who are very much opposed to this. And he spoke on this panel last night and he was talking about pro- Amazon projects that, you know, they were trying to buy. 17 acres in Freeport for $40 million. And then they up there offered a $49 million. And, you know, I'm sure there are differences there, maybe, you know, infrastructure that's already in place or whatever, but this has runways, you know, so yeah, I, I, it's a ridiculously low price. I think we can all agree on that. And what was the temperature in the room, Beth, uh, when you were there last night? What, what, what are people, are people hopeful or people, just well, they're angry. angry. They're angry. Yeah. And, and they, I, I felt a little bit of hopelessness, but uh, I don't know. That's that's sort of where the anger comes from, right? It's yeah. the feeling you're not being heard. People are really frustrated. And I mean, this is combined with proposals all over that region of town for the big logistics, you know, warehouses that will be kind of like complementary to a cargo port if that's what is actually going to happen there. Um, so, you know, there people are angry about that and energized about that. And, um, you know, I think that I, I, people, I feel like people, from what I've witnessed, people are more engaged and plugged in to these issues than I've seen people engaged and plugged in to local issues in a really, really long time. Hmm. So, well, as you say, this is we're in it for the long haul. Uh, this is not a story that's going to go away anytime soon. I'm sure we'll be circling back to have more conversations in the coming weeks and months and years uh, as we go forward. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Joe Workmeister of Newsday. And Joe, let's talk about the governor, Kathy Hochul, visiting the South Fork this week. Why was she here? Yeah, the governor was out uh, Wednesday. There was actually a couple uh, um, events out in Montauk, Montauk Point, to uh, kind of commemorate uh, two two projects uh, kind of finishing up at the exact same time related to the lighthouse, um, one being a big federal state project um, to fortify the shoreline there, a uh, big Army Corps of Engineers project that's been on, ongoing for two years and uh, wrapped up recently. And that's why uh, the governor and some other officials with the New York uh, Department of uh, Environmental Conservation and federal officials uh, were out uh, to kind of mark that uh, milestone. And obviously an important project when, you know, you kind of just can look at uh, Montauk Point out there and you see from before and after pictures over the years how much uh, erosion is just kind of, um, you know, s- slowly uh, eaten away at that bluff there, and and the lighthouse gets closer and closer to the ocean. And um, you know, this project started as I said in 2021, and I, you know, I think at the time before they kind of started this, there was you know some different opinions on what the best way forward was to kind of you know different types of projects that they um, could do, and ultimately decided on this um, 
kind of rebuilding this uh, revetment, which is essentially taking all these really large boulders and rocks and kind of building a uh, a wall that you know seawall, I guess you could say, that protects um, uh, that area from the. Uh, you know, unrelenting waves that just keep on coming every day. And um, so, you know, the hope is now that, you know, this project will uh, be able to fortify that uh, area for years to come and, uh, you know, slow that um, erosion. The, you know, what the officials say is that the lighthouse when it uh, originally was built was about 296 feet from the bluff and that's down to about 95 feet. That's Um, amazing. That's an amazing statistic just to show how, how much it's eroded over the years. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's unbelievable. And you, know, and you can see it, you know, even in some before and after pictures. Um, you know, it really, um, you know, emphasizes. Uh, you know, and one of the things I thought was interesting when I was talking to the um, executive director of the lighthouse uh, or the uh, the historical society that um, owns that property there now, basically runs the lighthouse. Um, she was telling me that the original surveyor, when they were building the lighthouse, you know, had the the foresight to try to put the lighthouse as far away from the bluff as as they could knowing that this was eventually you know over years was going to be a problem you know so i thought that was interesting you know even in the 1700s that you know they kind of knew like all right this is probably going to be a problem down the road and 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 tried to uh you know accommodate for it as best as they could um but on top of that so you know that project wrapped up um they finished with the uh, rocks and boulders i think in around december they said with the army corps and then um final kind of touches on it um in around june i think uh but on top of that there's a separate project on the lighthouse itself to you know do a restoration of that and that's been um multiple phases over several years and got delayed by the pandemic and you know kind of COVID as it did with everything uh threw a wrench into that and um, that just wrapped up as well recently. And so they sell, were celebrating that. And that was really kind of the um, bringing some local people together, you know, because that was funded really through a lot of private donations and grants. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who really care about the area contributed to that, uh, whereas the other project was really federally funded and, and state funded. Um, that was obviously a lot more a lot more expensive. Um, but the restoration project really helped to restore the outside of uh, the structure, which, you know, as you said, dates back to the uh, 1700s. And uh, so they were able to put a, kind of a, a new coating on it that is um, breathable to kind of help with the moisture um, in, in the area there. And, and we'll, as the uh, people in the lighthouse say, it looks better than it has in years. And uh, so everyone I think, was really excited about, you know, these two projects coming together at the same time. And this restoration project um, was actually the largest um, project on the tower itself since uh, the late 1800s when they added 30 feet uh, to the tower. So, you know, it's been a while since um, something of this kind of magnitude, um, you know, was, was undertaken at, at the lighthouse. And, you know, obviously everyone kind of knows, I think most of the basic history of the lighthouse, you know, George Washington uh, commissioned it, and uh, it's the oldest lighthouse in the state. And, and you know anybody from Long Island knows Montauk Point Lighthouse, so you know it's such a uh, iconic spot that um, you know it's important to do these uh, kinds of projects to make sure that it's still there for years and years to come. It was a big project too. I mean, it lasted um, several years, and and as you said, it was actually two separate projects because we had written about some of the some of the modern slash old-fashioned technology that they were using to renovate the lighthouse itself that um, actually when the lighthouse was built, you know, some of the ways they they did it, uh, modern ways sort of changed that a little bit, but didn't work as well as far as keeping it safe. So they reverted to some of the older uh ways with with the uh, mortar that they used and things like that when they when they were renovating they had to remove all the old paint um in two foot square sections one at a time and can you just imagine how long how long that took yeah it's been a long time in coming yeah, it's and, fascinating. And yeah, the, yeah the the outside work to the big cranes and everything have been there for for some time now so this is the culmination of a big project so it was nice that the governor came by to to help celebrate the the end of that. And as you said, I, the state government had a huge involvement in getting that done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the state uh, DEC, I think, contributed around $15 million and the federal fund and it was around $28 million. 
Um, so, you know, it was, uh, obviously an expensive project and actually finished, um, ahead of schedule, which, you know, I think everyone was pretty uh, proud about that because how many projects, uh, actually, uh, finish, come in ahead, ahead of schedule these days. And I think they're originally, the original timeline had it finishing up around in the fall. Um, and, and so now, to, you know, basically finish up in you know, kind of late spring, I guess, um, you know, that was, uh, uh, nice to see. And, um, so yeah, it was, uh. You know, nice, nice to see the governor. Um, you know, thought it was important make, enough to to make, make an appearance out in Montauk, right? Yeah, and, willing uh, to sit in summer traffic and and make the trip to Montauk. We should mention. Yeah, we I, I, I was thinking about that. I, I mean, I, I assume she probably took that, a helicopter out. Right? I mean, <laughs> no way she was on the LIE for four hours. Right? <laughs> we we should mention we record on Friday mornings. And the governor has another event planned on Friday later in the, this morning at the Bridgehampton Recreation and Child Care Center. Um, she's apparently going to make some type of policy announcement there, but they're cutting the ribbon on a project there uh, that I believe they're just wrapping up as well. Uh, but she has another event planned out here this week. So she's so she's taking a summer week in the Hamptons, it sounds like. Yeah, it's good It's time. good timing uh for her no question about it but uh i imagine so doing a little fun doing a little center. fundraising while she's here too the child care center renovation is really cool um, yeah this does a lot of really really good things for the community and uh provides a really great resource for kids after school and in summertime um it's, it's yeah, not yeah it's a, a, it's a great time. asset yeah, and it it's really been is. it's been that for a generation too, right? I mean, it's it, the, we're seeing um, adults coming back now and helping out at the center because they went through the center and got that benefit as they were growing up, and they they see the 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 real uh, value of that to the Bridgehampton community. So, congratulations to them for finishing up that project as well. So, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Uh, we're with the Express News Group, and our panelists are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Joe Workmeister of Newsday. Uh, let's talk, uh, swing back to Riverhead. And Denise, there was a conversation this week among uh, immigrant advocates in Riverhead. Um, they're asking uh, for some help from Riverhead, right, to, to back off a little bit on the immigrant community that that there's been a bit of an influx in the last few months. Um, tell us about what's going on up there. Well, I mean, there hasn't been an influx in Riverhead. Um, and, you know, just to be clear about that. The uh, influx has been to the state, right? Yeah, I mean, th what's, what's happened is that um, border states and some other states have joined in this uh, as well, uh, have been busing or flying even um, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, essentially from other countries that cross the border, um, and um, to states in the north that they have, you know, typically um, so-called blue states that they say are, you know, sanctuary states, and so you deal with this. They're, you know, share the wealth, and so the city of New York has received um, last. Last I heard from the mayor there, uh, you know, there was a statement that like 100,000 migrants and the wow. mayor of New York City. And this this also I mean, there was a whole big thing about how there was a the lifting of this ban uh, uh, that was in place during covid that essentially would not let asylum seekers into the country, which has is the law. If someone's seeking asylum, our law says they they come in and they ask for it that you don't leave them on the other side of the border but because of covid ostensibly that that was um put on hold and so migrants that sought to enter the united states from the south as as refugees were um were not allowed to enter and um they that was lifted um when I don't know May I guess that was lifted and the the busing and and shifting of migrants to the northern states started more than a year before that and when that change happened in May 
New York City said they already had 60,000 migrants delivered to New York City um, from, you know, essentially mostly Texas. Um, and they were uh, asking other municipalities around New York State to share this burden because the, the mayor there was saying, we don't have any more space to house these people, even temporarily. Um, and so that began a battle royale between the liberal Democratic New York City mayor and the Republican county officials, county executives and such around the state. And um, including they, Riverhead, right? Well, yeah, I mean, well, and Riverhead was the only like town that really got into the act with um, this executive order, emergency order that the town supervisor issued uh, May 16th that said, um, you know, these migrants, these buses are not allowed to, they're not allowed to settle migrants in the town of Riverhead, that hotels and motels and shelters were barred from accepting migrants and asylum seekers, specifically saying that. And that began uh, sort of, well, two things, uh, some, co some controversy locally when um, uh, Ola of Eastern Long Island, uh, the New York Civil Liberties Union that came down on this, you know, you can't do this, it's illegal, yada, yada, yada. And they were, you know, they were all, all over the town. And then, um, but beyond, I mean, locally and beyond, there was a groundswell of support for the supervisor's action because mm. you know we're getting overwhelmed with people the latino you know immigrants uh, undocumented and otherwise and you know the supervisor ended up on fox news uh she ended up on newsmax and just she got all kinds of national media coverage for this uh action that she took and a great deal of support and praise uh, from people in the local community and beyond for, for doing this. Uh, so there were just like a complete divergence of reaction to this as one might expect. And um, so what did the, the immigration advocates have to say this week? Well, this week, I mean, you bear in mind also that Riverheads had defended in a lawsuit brought by the Civil Liberties Union against, you know, the various county executives and the town of Riverhead. Uh, so we're def we're defending that right now. And what they had to say was what they've been saying right along was that this is not only um, sort of callous to the plight of these migrants, but it's really harmful to the Latino community that already lives here. Many, many, many of which are, you know, first of all, native-born residents. You know, people who were born here and grew up here. They happen to be of Latino heritage. Um, legal immigrants who are living here illegally and have their documents, uh, in addition to the population that doesn't, that's not documented, that's been living here, some of them, for decades. Because, you know, let's face it, they're also the backbone of the local economy in so many ways. And but the point of the immigration advocates is that this is harmful to people who are already living here because they they are now they now have like targets on their backs unfairly. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think there's personally, I think there's something to that here. And um, they've been saying that right along. They've been demanding that sort of get rescinded right along. The town supervisor has not, you know, ag agreed with that, obviously. And for the first time since this was issued in May, there was a group of people that came to the town board meeting. They had apparently written to the town board requesting that they meet with the town board about this, never got an answer. And um, we're told the other night, well, we can't meet with you. We're in litigation about this. Mm. I don't know. Um, but they were, Convenient. Um, you know, they, they came down and said, Please show show some empathy, folks. I mean, they you know kept repeating. There was a member of the clergy there. There was you know representative of Ola and other groups, um, and it didn't seem to produce any movement in any direction. Um, 
But you know, there's an aspect of this whole discussion that I find intriguing, and I believe I'm right about this, but correct me if I'm wrong. Part of the issue is that the migrants who are being bussed around the country and dropped in places aren't able to work immediately. They have to wait a certain period of time before they can get work permits. And and if I understand the thinking, that's because you don't want to encourage people to make the 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 trip. If you if you allow people to work immediately upon arriving, um, it sort of encourages that. And so people, you know, governments been have been a little wary about doing that. But it, what you have is a group of able-bodied men and women who are eager to work who can't work. And so they're stuck in shelters and they're stuck in different places without the ability to actually contribute to the economy for, what is it, six months, I think, or something like that. Well, and provide for themselves, too. I mean, Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, that's that's really makes it a, a it, it ramps up the, the negative impacts. Uh, and I think, I think no they've fault. been trying to, haven't they been trying to do something? I mean, people are trying to do something about that. I think the governor yeah. is even, you know. Um, you need to change federal law to make that happen yeah yeah um but if they get caught working off the books somewhere that really hurts their cases so it's not like they could just pick up work they really need to toe the line during that six months yeah i'm familiar with this just i i'm uh, a friend of mine is actually an immigrant from europe who was in the that boat he you know came to this country he actually got married um, but still is waiting for for papers, which is a long process, and doesn't want to work off the books. You know, he works in the uh, uh, service industry, but he doesn't want to work off the books and risk his application. Um, so, yeah, it's been more than six months, and he's been just just waiting. So it's 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 just a further example that we have issues with the immigration system that really need need to be reexamined. Um, and figure out what some solutions are, but Riverhead, as you said, and, and these sort of- and and these aren't just you. You know, I, I don't want to say typical or run of the mill. I don't. I don't know what the better term is. Immigrants. These are people that are seeking asylum be, because they've been mistreated in in their home countries. Um, you know, we're not just talking about. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously, all immigrants are looking for for a better life, but these are these are people that. That, that didn't feel like they had an option to stay in their home countries because of, um, you know, overarching governments and, and abuses and, you know, and, and that type of thing. And, and I think it's, it's critical to remember that, too, when you're thinking about, you know, do we want to be empathetic and sympathetic to to this this group of people? And we lose sight of the, of the real human beings involved uh, yeah. because it's a political issue and, and there are lives that are being uh, affected here. Um, any any idea that Riverhead may reconsider in the short term? No, I don't think that's a possibility. But, so, so we know that the the supervisor made this this emergency declaration. Where where does the rest of the town board um, sit on this? Have they been vocal at all li- in well, support uh, of the supervisor? They're, they're, or again? they're lined up right behind her. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, they absolutely are. I mean, it, it's not something that's been brought to any sort of a vote before the town board, but. You know they have they have expressed support. Um, some of them went to a press conference that the Suffolk County um, legislative uh, leader, um, presiding officer uh, McCaffrey, Mc, yeah McCaffrey McCarthy, uh, McCaffrey, <laughs> um, the presiding officer McCaffrey uh, called shortly after uh, Yvette is Aguiar issued this uh, order, and I mean. What we uncovered and reported on was that the basis for this executive order in May, and which, you know, initially she kind of admitted, um, was actually comments made on a radio talk show uh, by uh, host Curtis Sliwa of Guardian Angel fame, Mm. who he seems to have Riverhead in his target all the time. He's always talking about how it's a hotbed of gangs. It's got the jail here and they, they control their gangs from their jail cells and they have their capos in the street in Riverhead. I I don't know, but he's been saying things like that for years. And he, um, 
was talking about how the migrant buses were going to Riverhead. That evening, Yvette Aguiar issued this executive order. And Tim Based Hubbard, on his report. Well, and there, she, and there had been obviously no no plans underway. She to, didn't. There weren't. So she didn't quite say it was based on his report, but she said she heard it and she had listened to it. And, you know, she had a recording of it. And Tim Hubbard the next day said he admitted that it was, as he put it, based off of Curtis Sliwa's comments. So and Sliwa's comments were completely un, unfounded. Like. They, they were not coming here. He he was he was conflating a bunch of different things. He they had already sent migrants. They New York City's contractor had already um, it had already sent migrants by agreement to two hotels upstate, and they were supposedly looking for other locations around the state to do this with other lo- hotels. Um, We called around, we spoke to motel and hotel and shelter operators in Riverhead the next day. Nobody said, everybody denied that they were contacted by, we couldn't reach one place that we know has emergency housing from the county. Um, And, you know, everybody said, no, we hear, the first we heard about this was last night or this morning when Riverhead police came and said, you're not allowed to, you know, take any of these people in because of this order. Here. And so like that seemed to have been something that was made up from whole cloth. The supervisor made it sound like the buses were on the expressway had to turn around, you know, kind of, you know, and that is something that's been embellished and has kind of grown over time uh, to the point where this last this past week on an interview she does on Tuesday mornings, with the local AM radio station that, you know, the buses were on their way here and they were diverted because of her order and um, went to Colony, New York, outside of Albany, which, I mean, migrants were housed, were sent to Colony, but like two over two weeks later, like, I mean, mm. I don't know if they took the long way around, but like, you know, they, so, I mean, things just, you know, things are said, words are used and words have impacts. And I think that's what, these these groups were were trying to the point they were trying to make is that your it's words just, are powerful and they have impacts on people's lives. It just feels feels hate. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, you know, that's been the situation that we're in. There, I I think there's no chance that this is going to be reversed. I will say, interestingly enough, they hired outside counsel to defend this litigation because you know we have plenty of money to spend on legal fees around here in this town. And the outside counsel advised them, we got, you know, at one point we got an updated emergency order and it took out all references to migrants and asylum seekers. It just like said that they're not, you know, that hotels and motels and shelters in the town are not allowed to displace existing shelter residents for new homeless people. (laughs) And the town attorney told us that they took out that reference on the advice of the outside counsel that they got to defend this this order, which, I, you know, you can tell I found it kind of funny. But like, you know, oh, yeah, OK, you know, don't mention that this had anything to do with migrants. That's not going to be good yeah. for your case. And it was like it purported to be retroactive, this revision, mm. you know. Like I said, I have a, I have the Twilight Zone theme song on my a little, you know recording of it on my desktop and every now and then like at least once a day i hit that button and i hear the you know the classic <laughs> twilight <laughs> it feels like riverhead is on the front lines of the uh, culture wars in some regards in that way i speaking of culture wars there's another story i wanted to talk about joe workmeister you've written about this um east hampton town there's a committee in the town that's focused on the town has very ambitious goals when it comes to reducing carbon emissions and reducing reliance on fossil fuels, um, they're they're very much moving forward apace on that. And their committee recommended this week that the town adopt rules that say new houses built in East Hampton Town 
should be all electric, that we should get away from using um, gas in houses, oil heat in houses. This has been a flashpoint at the national level, too, for a, a lot of folks. Uh, a lot of conservatives are very critical of these policies. Um, what would the, the real world effect of this be? I mean, the, the idea being that electric and the town is moving towards more green sources for electricity, that it would start to reduce the need for fossil fuels, I guess. Yeah, you know, as you said, I think East Hampton's really been um, a leader in trying to come up with green initiatives over the last decade, really. And uh, so this Energy and Sustainability Committee uh, recommended that they essentially pass a, a legislation that would ban uh, or require all electric and new construction beginning in 2025. Uh, that would be a year earlier than uh, the, the ban on gas stoves that New York State has passed. And so it kind of what they were sort of saying, kind of jumpstart the process out here, and kind of get um, get that, you know, kind of rolling um, quicker. And, you know, as you said, it's been a, you know, a hot topic, you know, nationally, people think, you know, they're the government's coming for my gas stove. And, um, you know, part of you know the reason for that is uh, there's been you know, studies that link um, the uh, emissions from the, the gas stove there that lead to you know, increases in childhood asthma and, and there's other you know health concerns there uh, on top of you know just the overall um, you know environmental uh, aspect to it so you know there's that health aspect and um, so um, you know what this would do is as I said in 2025 would require a new construction you know, you know not just you know stoves but you know heating electric um, cooling systems, things like that. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's interesting in East Hampton in particular, because obviously one of the things they were talking about is there's not a lot of land for new construction. It's not like there's new houses going up, you know, left and right. So part of, you know, the idea is, well, what, you know, what counts when a home is, you know, rebuilt or, you know, you have a tear down and new construction that way. So I think that's kind of where they sort of have to come up with some of the details there and, and what counts as uh, new construction and that. And then they were also talking about just incentives that uh, could be offered for people to replace, you know, if you have to get a new uh, stove or whatever it be, you know, to you know, maybe go from gas to electric and, uh, you know, and not may not be that easy to do, but, you know, what certain incentives might um you know, encourage people to do that. And part of what I think the committee is hoping is just bringing more education to this and, and at least coming up with this um, plan, you know, gets gets the this idea out and, and the conversation people are talking about it and they maybe start looking into it and understand why it may be important and, and, and to consider it. And so, you know, there's nothing concrete yet that the town board is going to be voting on or anything like that yet. But, um, you know, I, I got the sense the town board seemed receptive to the idea and you know they had some questions on you know what effects would it be on the power grid out here and things of that nature but um so yeah as you know, I said east hampton's really been kind of trying to be you know a, a leader on these uh, clean energy initiatives and um you know this would be definitely one of the uh, are, are they uh, next does, steps. Does, does this include natural gas or are they just talking about propane i mean because you've had ps pseg offering incentives to switch from electric to to natural gas for 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 years uh yeah i'm not a hundred percent sure I believe, I, it's, would, I, I believe it targets propane and natural gas both. yeah i would assume so um yeah i think i think that would make sense that would be both and of yeah. course there's an irony here because the electric the electricity is still largely driven by fossil fuels as well. So, but the idea, yeah, and I think they tried, they tried to acknowledge that. And, and, you know, I think the hope is that, you know, as years go by, we're able to generate more electricity um, with, the state with has cleaner pretty, energy. Pretty serious goals in terms of electrify, of uh, making the grid hundred percent renewable by yeah. 2040 and 70% by 2030. But I think this dovetails right now with kind of the national conversation about um, the Inflation Reduction Act. A, a lot of what's in the Inflation Reduction Act is um, incentives for people to convert a lot of their um, home systems to uh, electric power. And um, 
And a lot of these uh, methods are really complicated because they involve tax credits and knowing whether or not they're refundable is a question mark. And also you have to go through a certified contractor um, who's authorized by the program in order to get these tax credits and rebates. And um, and the prices for these systems, you know, if you go out and price uh, mini split um, heat air source heat pumps for your entire home, you know, you see the actual cost of the unit and it's, you know, maybe $10,000 to put the units in your house, but then you get a quote from one of these certified contractors for $25,000 and you think, well, mm. I have to make a profit, but it's a That's lot. A lot. <laughs> Um, so it's also pushing people to electricity, which is more expensive here than it is in most parts of the country. Um, right. but, I mean, but, the, the idea behind the heat pump technology is that it's supposed to be more efficient. Um, but seeing the actual numbers is something that I think hasn't been communicated well. So that's, I think, part of what the education component that East Hampton is looking at is because you need to know before you invest in this if it's going to cost you a lot more on a monthly basis. Um, the Inflation Re Reduction Act also includes these incentives for doing rooftop solar and whatever, but a lot of, you know, it, your home is not necessarily a great candidate for it. No, we're going to need more best systems. Well, there's that too. <laughs> Let's not open that can of worms. Uh, and Southampton is going to vote on that moratorium on Tuesday. Yes. So that, but just to be clear, Joe, there's no, this is a committee recommendation. There's no new rule yet at the town level, correct? Right. So the, you know, it's a committee, it's an advisory committee, you know, so, um, and, and they actually said they were, you know, they had, this is something that they had been considering for about a year now and, and kind of put it on the, on hold until uh, the state kind of went through their process and passed something. So they were kind of waiting for the state uh, first and then now have issued this, uh, recommendation so you know the town board can ignore it and, and not do anything or decide you know to but, but the, the um, town, town board members and the supervisor seem pretty supportive um at, at the meeting of passing some kind of code right i mean in in the future i mean certainly not tomorrow but i think they wanted to right right yeah, things, yeah but I they think, did they, they did seem seem pretty supportive it's worth a point yeah. of emphasis though joe if you if you live in east hampton and you have a gas stove you don't have to worry about this right now, right? This is not going to be something that Correct. says you've got to take your gas stove or your gas heating system out. Right. So, yeah, this wouldn't, what they're proposing here wouldn't require yeah. anyone who has a gas stove to have to switch over. Uh, it's just, you know, just new construction. Right. Yeah. I have a feeling this is going to, going to get some attention, though. Uh, once the, the conversation picks up, because this has been sort of a flashpoint at the national level, too. We're out of time, guys. Uh, we had a lot to talk about this week, and I think we covered a lot of topics. Uh, my thanks to our panelists, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Joe Workmeister of Newsday, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Thank you guys for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, of the Express News Group. I'm Joe Shaw. Thank you for listening to Behind the Headlines. We'll be back next week with another show.